said, you have no rival, you have no equal. Yours is the name above all names. Yours is the power and yours is the kingdom. And that's what God wants to ask us tonight is, does he have any rival and does he have any equal? Let's just answer that first question first. Does God have any rival? You say, well, in what sense do you mean? Well, are there any that would attempt to rival him? Let's ask it that way. Does he have any rival? It's a little bit of a trick question. He has no rival, but there are many who attempt it. He has no equal, but we would try to be his equal in our flesh. And when we decide who's going to win that competition, we have decided who's going to be the Lord of our lives. In 1 John 3, it says, See and consider what an incredible quality of love the Father has showered upon us. That we should be permitted to be named and called and counted the children of God. And so we are. The reason that the world does not know, recognize, or acknowledge us is that it does not know, recognize, or acknowledge Him. This is a much-loved scripture. We sing it, this was the first song I learned on the piano, and one of the last, too. <laughs> Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. It relates closely with, with John 1. This is 1 John 3, but it relates closely with John 1.11. Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the exousia, the right, the power, the privilege to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John begins his gospel by saying, God gave us the power to become his sons. And in his epistle, he says, think about, consider, behold, look at the kind of love that God gave that empowers us to be his sons. Can we be God's sons without power? What's the power that makes us sons? Love. Behold what kind of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we might be permitted to be named and called and counted the children of God. And then in John 1, he says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right, the exousia, the privilege and the power to become children of God to those who believe in his name. But then he indicates that we can't believe in his name, his authority, which is what his name denotes here, unless we are born again. 
unless something happens that brings a different nature into our hearts than the nature we were born with. Those who believe in his name are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. This would indicate that your native nature does not believe, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to your native nature. And so God has to add a new nature. He has to give you a new beginning. He has to put a new person inside of you. And that new nature, that new self, is going to be able to resonate, recognize, and believe the voice of God. Because your old nature will not be remodeled, improved, or helped. Your old nature is flawed. It's corrupt. And as long as it is God's rival, you have no hope. But if it can be dethroned, if it can be expelled and evicted from your life, God will give you a new beginning, a new nature, a new power. And that new nature is God's Son. And God's Son recognizes the voice of His dad, of His spiritual dad. And suddenly, this whole new gamut of knowledge and power and possibility and joy and hope starts flooding into your life because of this new nature that can relate and understand the language of the Father. Relate to and understand the language of the Father. The power enabling us to become God's sons is love. We are transformed when we learn to trust God's love above and before our own strength, our own will, and what that willful strength can accomplish. Satan will disarm our power for transformation when he diminishes our confidence in God's love for us. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. So if Satan wants you to not be a son of God, what is he going to do? He is going to make you distrust God's love for you. He is going to make you doubt that when God comes to you, he is coming with love. When he reproves you, he is disciplining those he loves and scourging every son he, he accepts. And if he can get you to interpret God's love as hatred and rejection, well then he has aborted your chance for transformation. Consider what kind of love God has lavished on us that would allow us to become the sons of God. Thank you, Jesus. Was there ever times in Jesus' ministry when he wanted to pour love on someone, but the devil got them to misinterpret that love that would change them and make them into God's son, and instead he got them to doubt, distrust, and flee from their 
transformation, the thing they were praying for, longing for, wishing for, asking for? Can you think of any examples? Amen. Thank you, Jesus. So in his hometown, his people are listening and they're feeling the grace of God, aren't they? But when he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, he takes it out of the pages of concepts and brings it into the immediacy of presentational confrontation. They start backpedaling. They don't like the hint of authority in that statement. And then he says to them, you will quote me this parable. Physician, heal yourself. And then he tells them he can't do many mighty things. The very thing they thought they were excited about actually ends up offending them to the point that they're willing to crucify the answer to their prayers, the fulfillment of their hopes, the Messiah who came to them in their synagogue, in their town. Anybody else? Can you think of any other examples of when somebody came reaching for transformation and Jesus had love that he wanted to give, but they misinterpreted? Huh? Okay. Explain it. Well, it says that Jesus looked at him and loved him, and Jesus gave him something to do, but he didn't want to do that, so he went away sad. So do you feel like when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and found the courage to humble himself, a ruler, a rich ruler at that, found the courage to humble himself and ask the Lord for help in front of a whole multitude to be written down in the pages of history forever. When he does that, there must have been something sincere. Jesus, it doesn't say Jesus looked at him and scorned him. It says Jesus looked at him and loved him. He loved him. And so he tells him something and the rich young ruler is like, yeah, 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 I've already done that. And he says, okay, well, there's something you haven't done. You haven't learned to start walking, trusting someone else instead of yourself. You rely on your riches because they remind you of your abilities. They console your flesh of what it can do without God. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but this is it. So he says, get rid of all of that that flatters your own godhood. Get rid of all of that that embellishes your sense of capacity and power and look what I've done. And why don't you just leave it all behind and learn to follow me? That's what he hadn't done. He hadn't walked by faith. He had sat complacently in the do's and don'ts of his external religion and he had felt empty in that. He wanted more. And he, he saw these 12 apostles who were obeying that same command that he was given. Had the Lord not said to Peter, put down your nets and follow me? To Peter and Andrew both? Hmm? They had entered into that walk of faith, that journey of belief. They were, they were letting him be God. They were saying, you have no rival. You have no equal. Where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Thank you, Jesus. But the rich man didn't want to follow. 
I believe that the word follow was more troubling to him than the word sell. I believe that the word sell, he didn't like it because he had many possessions, but those possessions just reflected his own godhood. But you come, follow me, and you will be my disciple. He didn't like that. And what was God's love able to do in terms of transforming that rich ruler? What was God's powerful, life-giving, saving love able to do in terms of transforming that rich young ruler? Hmm? Nothing. Nothing at all. He went away sad. And every time God speaks to you and you go away feeling like you didn't get what you came for, it's because there's something inside of you that is reinterpreting his demands as something besides love, which is what they are. Amen. He didn't understand that Jesus was extending something to him that very few people in all the history of mankind would have the privilege of knowing, and that was following the Lord in those limited years when he was on this earth. What a compliment Jesus paid that man with that simple demand. I want you to be in my team. I want you to trust me. I want you to be with Peter, James, and John. Same thing he told Matthew the tax collector. Same thing he told Peter and Andrew. James and John. So Satan steals us of transformative power when he... What? I already said it. When he what? How does Satan stop transformation in our lives? When he gets us to doubt God's love. Because what changes us? What transforms us into being God's sons? In John 15, Jesus says, Greater love hath no man than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I have commanded you to. In John 15, 18, he says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Why does the world hate us? Because we belong to somebody else. It hates us because we have become the property of Jesus. We have been purchased with his blood. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. And the world is a system set up where people flatter themselves about what they can do for themselves by themselves. But the kingdom is a sense system where people honor God for what he is doing that they could never do without him. And so he says the world hates you because you're not it. You don't belong to it. If you were the, of the world, the world would love its own. What does that tell you? That people love those things that belong to them. Hmm? The world loves the things that belong to it. The rich young ruler loved the things that belong to him. And Jesus loves the things that belong to him. <clears throat> Brother Daniel, could you get John 14, 21? In John 10, 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and I am known 
by my own. You hear the possessive language in that, brothers and sisters? I know my sheep and I am known by my own. What is salvation? To know the only true God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. But who knows him? Those who are owned by him. Those who have become his possession. Can you read that to us? He who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Amen. Carnal Christianity will teach you that if you keep his commandments, you don't love God. That somehow love is antithetical to obedience. But Jesus says, read it again. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. When you can keep God's commandments, when you can obey the voice of God, it's an indication that something has happened to you. You believe in the name of the Son of God because you were born again. Because there's something in you that is the Son of God that is enabling you. And it is the one who walks in that obedience that truly loves God. If you cannot walk in that obedience, it shows a lack of love in your heart toward God. But how do we love God? According to 1 John 4.19. We love Him because one day we woke up and said, you know, let's do that. How do we love God? Because He first loved us. Because He first loved us. But He also loved the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler did not love Him. So it's not just the fact that He loved us. But it is the reality of recognizing that love, believing that love, and receiving that love, and then reciprocating that love. That translates into an obedience that does not come from our own strength, but comes from God. Romans 8, 9 says, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature but by the Spirit of God, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Are you God's son? There are two things that makes you a son of God. When God puts his nature in you, okay, that makes you a son of God. But that nature cannot reside and abide in you unless the Ishmael nature of your flesh, which is his rival, is first expelled from your life. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we might become the sons of God. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So the specific love that God has given is himself, his Spirit. He has sent forth his Spirit into our hearts. 
we're going to read here momentarily. Joel, what makes you the son of Philip? You were begotten of Philip. Philip's DNA lives inside of you. There's nothing you can do to change that. You are not a son of Philip because of your behavior. Okay? You are a son of Philip because of your nature. Now, in our natural state, we are children of wrath. Just as all the rest, Paul says. We are sons of wrath. We are sons of judgment, is what he's saying. Because our nature, he says, we were by nature children of wrath, just as all the rest. Notice he does not say you were by circumstance children of wrath. He does not say you were by behavior children of wrath. He says you were by nature children of wrath. So we become children of God when he gives us a new nature. It's as if God comes to you and says, would you like to be born to a different dad? Not than Philip, but than the carnal nature, than the first Adam. We're speaking of spiritual fathers here. Would you like a, a go-over? Would you like to redo this? Would you like to be born to a different dad than the first Adam and all of his unrighteousness, whereby sin reigned through the one? Amen. According to Romans, amen. And if you say, yes, God, I do. It doesn't happen just from saying that. But if you seek him diligently, he will be found by you. And he will not remodel you. He will not improve on you. He will give you a new nature. <laughs> and when his nature comes inside of you, you're his. <laughs> you're his boy. You're his girl. You belong to God. Do you understand? So let's read this passage again in Romans 8. However, you are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. Everybody say controlled. How many of you want to be controlled by somebody else? And all you pagans, keep your hands down. Amen. How many of you want to be controlled by God? If you don't want to be controlled by somebody else, don't come to Jesus. Because that's what he's offering. Let's read it again. You are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives, present tense, inside of you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. I know my own, but you don't belong to him unless his spirit is living inside of you. That doesn't mean unless his spirit occasionally visits you. You become his son when you are born that second time. And suddenly the spiritual DNA of this guy is different than the spiritual DNA of Adam. Oh. This is a son of God. He goes on, but if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin. We're still, we're still living in an unglorified body, in an unredeemed existence in our flesh. Outwardly, what's happening? 
We're wasting and fading away. But inwardly, what's happening? We're being renewed day by day. So, though the body is dead because of the curse of sin, yet the spirit is alive, your Bible will say, because of righteousness, but it's better translated for righteousness. So you're not going to ever escape the curse of the earth. You're never going to be without disease. You're never going to, to sidestep that rendezvous with, with death. Amen? But while you're getting this pressure of breakdown from the outside, you're getting this renewal, this life welling up from the inside, renewed day by day. In exact proportion to the outward decay, something's happening from the inside. And he says, the body is dead. He's speaking figuratively. The body is under death, we'll say, because of sin. Meaning the curse that is on the whole earth, right? But the spirit is alive for what? The spirit is alive to help you do God's will. To help you be righteous. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit. He says, if you'll let the spirit live now in the decaying flesh, then someday he's going to give life even to that part. Amen. We shall throw off this mortal coil and death and the grave will be swallowed up in immortality. Then will come the saying, then will the saying be fulfilled. Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Amen. So now we, we are not clothed as we want because this garment, this tent that would clothe us is vulnerable to disease, is vulnerable to death. But someday this tent will become eternal and durable. Amen. Immortal. Just like the body of the resurrected Christ. But that promise of a redeemed body, of a resurrected life, is contingent on whether the Spirit is living in you now. I'm going to read it to you again. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, present tense, He who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal body. So there's a present, now living spirit and a future hope of resurrection of the body. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For, uh, who is he talking to? Therefore, brothers, is he talking to unsaved people here? No, he's talking to brothers. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. Now, everybody's going to die regardless of how they live, okay? But he's talking about an eternal death here. He's talking about hell. But if by the Spirit... You put to death the misdeeds 
of the body, you will live. Because those, because all those who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Amen? How do we put to death the misdeeds of the, of the, of the body? Well, first of all, we know that the body, there's something to put to death. There are thoughts that we put to death. There, is, there are emotions that we put to death. There is the exalted carnal mind that we put to death. There's a lot to put to death on a daily basis. But if you're living according to the carnal nature, will a house divided against itself, will, will your carnal nature put itself to death? Let me just put it that way. How many of you know that your carnal nature is not going to kill itself? Amen. It's too self-serving. It's too self-loving. It's full of vainglory. It's infatuated with itself. It's not going to put itself to death. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So the simplest definition for how, if you say, is this person being led by God? Back to our rich young ruler. He is, he is making a, a, a parallel between being led by the Spirit of God and putting to death the flesh. Do you get that? He says, all, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live for all who are being led by the Spirit of God. So the simplest way to know if someone is being led by the Spirit of God is to know, are they successfully killing the flesh? Or rather, is the Spirit successfully killing the flesh through them? Let's just think about that for a minute. Do you see what I'm saying? For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. And punishment has to do with sin. Amen? But you received a spirit of sonship or adoption. There's that rebirth. There's when we become his. There's the power that makes us sons of God. You receive the spirit of sonship. And by that spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father. You don't call someone else daddy unless they're really your daddy. But when God puts his nature in you, he's really your daddy. He's really your father. And so you can call out to him like his son, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Amen. So I said that there were two things that made us belong to God and made us his sons. And thus received this transformative love. One was being born of his new nature, right? Giving us a second nature. And what was the second thing? Oh, come on. Somebody. What was the second thing? Expelling the old nature who will not share space with the new. We belong to Jesus when we're born of Jesus. When he takes up residency in our souls. Yet he will not abide in us until we evict the old vagabond of the flesh. 
Am I telling you the truth on that count? What did Paul say in Galatians 5? But the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the work which His presence within accomplishes, is love. What is the first fruit of the Holy Spirit? The fruit which the Holy Spirit and His presence accomplishes inside is love. What's the second fruit? Joy. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and the ability to control that thing you could never control without it. Self-control. Amen? All who are being, these are the sons of God. But he says, you are not, what was the control? You are not being controlled. Where, Where was that? However, you are being controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit of God. So self-control, the ability to rule over, to control that old vagabond is one of the fruits of the Spirit. And love is the first because that describes the essence of the God who inhabits you. Against these things there is no law. And then let's look at the next line. He says, those who belong. Can everybody say belong? Belong. Is that a possessive term or what? Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified their flesh. The godless human nature with all its passions and appetites and desires. He goes on, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. What he's saying is if there's life to be had in the Spirit, you better not walk any other way. He's saying the same thing he said in Romans Romans 8. I'm sorry. If you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. So he says if there's life to be had, if we live, if we survive by the Spirit, come on, guys, let's start walking by the Spirit. People make ridiculous pretzels of that Scripture, but we'll just bypass that. If by the Spirit, if by the Holy Spirit we have our life in God, let us go forward walking in line, our conduct controlled by the Spirit. Let us, not became, let us not become, so the opposite of having your life controlled by the Spirit is this, let us not become vainglorious, self-conceited, competitive and challenging and provoking and irritating one another, envying and being jealous of one another. So how do you know if you are being led by the Spirit and putting to death the deeds of the flesh? Is there vainglory in your life? Is there self-conceit in your life? Is competition still churning beneath the surface? Are you challenging your brothers and sisters? Are you provoking and irritating them? Are you envying? Are you being jealous? Amen. Or is there love? Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Behold what manner of love the Father 
has bestowed upon us. That in the cross we would trust his character. And in trusting him, we would lay down and crucify our own godhood. And in evicting our own godhood, we would receive his very nature inside. To not be named sons of God only, but to become sons of God. Amen. In 1 John 3, 7. Well, let me just stop there for a second. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Do you believe you're saved? if you have a pattern of being controlled by your flesh. I'm asking you in all honesty, do you believe the Bible allows you to believe that you're saved if you have a pattern of being controlled by your flesh? If you live according to the flesh, you will die. If your flesh is on the throne, Jesus is not in you because he will not share that throne with a partially dead, a mostly dead, a pretended dead flesh. Amen. That flesh is going to have to be out. Does that mean you'll never make a mistake? No, it doesn't mean that. But it means that when you do make a mistake, and you start seeing that mistake taking over your life, you acknowledge you're going to hell unless you get rid of that and bring Jesus back on the throne. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. He's that child of wrath destined to wrath. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God has appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus showed up to help you overcome that child of wrath that would reign in your life otherwise. He appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. The one who is born of God does not practice sin. Because God's seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor the one who does not love his brother. So he says if you're not righteous, you're not of God, and you're obvious. It is not a mystery. It is not a mystery. Don't fool yourself. Don't imagine that you're a son of God if you are controlled by the sinful nature. You're not. You're just not. And you say, oh, I can't change. God must not love me. Oh, no, 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 no. God loves you. Just like he loved the rich young ruler. He loves you through words that could take root in your life. But you uproot those words of promise because you tenaciously cling to the weeds of your lies. He loves you through rebukes that would knock something off of you 
and free you from something you've been asking God for freedom from. But you resent that rebuke and you go away sad because you think he disciplines those he hates and scourges every son he rejects. Satan has convinced you that what God is doing to change you, that God's efforts to change you, he has convinced you that that is rejection when in fact it is love. You don't know what kind of love the Father bestows on us to make us sons. You've got a kind of love that you would use if you were the Father. Praise God you're not. Amen. If you were the Father, you would give the kind of love that is sweet and flattering and supportive only. But since He's God, He gives the kind of love that empowers you to put something to death. And that something is your stubborn will that is God's rival. So he says, consider what kind of love. He doesn't just say how much, but what kind. And we see that kind of love in the words of Jesus to the rich man, the rich young ruler. God's kind of love that makes you a son says, dismantle your kingdom that flatters your illusions of control. God's kind of love that transforms us says, stop leading yourself and become a follower. That's the kind of love. God's kind of love says, if you are controlled and led by the desires of your flesh, you're going to die. God's kind of love says, take your insolent, arrogant will to the cross and crucify it there. That's the kind of love that the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Thank you, Jesus. Now, we think that God is going to accept us based on our performance. But God accepts us based on His nature living inside of us. And God puts His nature inside of us based on our eviction of our competing carnal will from the throne. So, God doesn't accept us based on performance. You see, performance is what we can do. Amen? And so there's this desire in us to prove constantly. But the prover is the one who sits in the place of self-evaluation. And he must persuade others of what he alone sees about himself. That's what proving is. It's substantiating what you know to be true that others don't know. And so if you go about serving God to prove something about yourself, who's on the throne? This is Colossians, self-imposed religion, which have an appearance of godliness, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence because it is a fleshly indulgence. Do you understand? And so the prover is constantly trying to enlighten others. 
to their true nature. And by that I don't mean that vagabond of wretched, sinful flesh. But I mean, they know that they are capable. They just need others to see it. They know that they are loving. They just need others to see it. They know that they are smart and gifted and all of these things. And they view others not as dead men with a new nature animating their dead lives. They don't, they don't see when, when Brother Daniel leads worship and Brother Daniel surrenders to the reign of the Spirit within him and gives God the glory. They don't say, oh, praise God for another man who has died. Praise God that somebody could have the Holy Spirit living in and animating them. Oh, I want to be like that. They see his gift as a product of his flesh. And so they compete. And they say, I don't know why they accept Brother Daniel. I could, do, I could do sing just that well. I don't know why they think so highly of so-and-so. I could serve just that well. Do you not hear the flesh speaking? Do you not hear it? They don't see God in others, and so they don't pursue God in themselves. They don't pursue the infilling of the Spirit into their lives. They don't say, God, apart from you, I can do nothing. Brother Robert Ann's, Daniel's dad, used to say, I'm a zero with the rim knocked off. But they don't really believe that. They don't live their lives against the backdrop of human fleshly bankruptcy and hell. They believe that what they admire about others came from flesh and so they can produce that flesh themselves. And so they say, I want to be accepted. So they go into overdrive of proving and proving and proving and proving and proving and proving and proving. And yet, it never works, does it? Come on, are you with me? Does it ever work? Well, praise God it doesn't work. Amen. Of course it doesn't work. But they're astonished. Everything's a bargain. A sacrifice for some vainglory. Look what I did. Why didn't I get? It's a bargain, an exchange. It's not saying, God, I gave you ashes and you gave me love. I owe you everything. You've already paid the entire amount and so much more than I could deserve in a thousand lifetimes. I am under obligation not to the flesh. The person who lives in this bargain mentality is living under the obligation of the flesh. Do you see that? And so everything is, it's a bargain. It's an exchange. And, and, and what does bargaining and exchange lead to? Manipulation. 
manipulation. So you start saying, what do people want? Not what does God want, but what do people want? I met with somebody who used to be part of us about 25 years ago or so. And he sat across the table from me and said, I was a man pleaser the whole time I was there. And I thought, you know, that's, that's actually probably pretty true. What he was saying is, it was never internalized. I faked the death to my flesh, and I faked the inspiration of love. But John says that we can know if we've passed out of one camp and into the other. My dad said to me the other day, he named off all these brothers and he said, if the conviction and the reality of my love for them is evidence of my right standing with God, then I have peace because I love them so much. John said, we know we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. We agape. We are willing to give our lives for the brethren. Amen. But this person, he faked it. He, he faked his death. And then he faked the inspiration of the Spirit. When life became a drudgery, he didn't stop and fall on his knees and say, God, what is happening to me? Why am I feeling this way? This shouldn't be, I, I shouldn't be having these thoughts. I, somehow the flesh has crept back in, Jesus. Help me to crucify it. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Amen. Get me back to that place where I know you're on the throne. Give me the assurance and the proof that you're on the throne because I'm caring for, concerned about, and loving others more than myself. Not looking out for my own interests, but rather the interests of others indicates that I have let this mind be in me, which was also in Christ Jesus, who emptied himself of his rights. And in that condition, God isn't assessing your performance, he's, he's assessing your heart. You may blow it, you may fail, but what is your heart? Are you suppressing the carnal nature? Are you hiding the carnal nature? Are you putting makeup and wigs and good appearances on the carnal nature? He stinketh. Well, let's put some perfume on the carnal nature and prance it around and see if nobody notices that a corpse is still with me. That envy, bitterness, jealousy, and strife is still reigning in my heart. Well, you can deceive yourself, but you're not deceiving God. And I don't even know if you're deceiving yourself. There are two selves inside of you. There is a son of wrath. There is a child of wrath, a son of perdition. And there is a new nature born in the likeness of God. When, per when perpetual sin persists in our lives, we can have no doubt as to who is reigning. Let no one deceive you. You say, well, Paul, John says the one who is born of God cannot sin. But John also said if any man says he has no sin, the truth is not in him. 
What he's saying is that which is born of God cannot sin. Amen? And so if you have habitual sin, we know who's reigning in your life. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? Sure, you're going to make mistakes, but that's going to be a deviation from your pattern. That's not going to be your pattern. That's going to drop you on your face. That's going to humble you. That's going to get you back to that place where Jesus is Lord. And you're just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who saved your soul. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who also practices righteousness is born of him. True righteousness comes from a changed nature. I didn't say that. That's what John said. Everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Somebody says, how do I know that I'm entering into righteousness and not flesh, uh, filthy rags? Well, because true righteousness comes from God. That's what he says in Isaiah. All their righteousness will be from me, says the Lord. In Ephesians 4, he says, strip yourselves of your former nature. Put off and discard your old, unrenewed self which characterized your previous manner of life and becomes corrupt through carnal desires that spring from delusion. Lies told to Eve in the garden and told to us every day. And then he goes on, he says, and be constantly renewed in the spirit of your mind, having a fresh mental and spiritual attitude are you going to leave this meeting renewed in the spirit of your mind? With a fresh mental and spiritual attitude? Are you going to leave this meeting dragging that old body of death along, wondering how you're going to hide it next time? He goes on, he says, and put on the new nature, the regenerate self, which is created in God's image in true righteousness and holiness. The only thing that is truly righteous or holy is that which comes from God to God. Amen? Thank you, Jesus. Let's just pray for a minute. still considering what kind of love makes us God's sons? Hmm? Amen. Galatians 5. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. You could die through competition. You could be killed through rivalry. The devil wants to slay the fledgling life of the spirit that is conceived in your heart. He goes on, he says, I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Amen. Choose the Spirit, and you won't keep doing the things of the flesh. The problem is, is 
We are so infatuated with ourself that we have developed a constant confusion between the voice of God and the voice of self. Did you hear what I said? It's pretty flattering to think that we could confuse our voice with God's, isn't it? No, it's pretty shameful. It's pretty disgusting that we could confuse our carnal desires with the voice of God. But when you get offended and you get a bee in your bonnet and you get all full of judgments and criticisms and hatreds and you get on this righteous, self-righteous tangent and you're out to protect me, what are you doing? You are profoundly confusing the voice of God with the self-protective instincts of a dying flesh. Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. So that you may not do the things that you please. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under law. It's not really a glossy Invitation, is it? Come over here and you'll be controlled by something besides yourself. Come over here and you won't be able to do the things you please. Surrender to God and you'll no longer be in control of your life. Only people who have truly reached the end of their own godhood would entertain such a surrender. Only people so utterly and profoundly disgusted and disaffected with self would ever entertain Selling everything and following. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. And if we cannot make that choice, if we cannot take that step, it's because we are still enamored and deceived by our own godhood, by what we can do without God. And we're still a prover, a panicked prover instead of a trusting son. The flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. What does that look like? Have you ever felt, you know, I, I got to think about this. Have you ever wanted something really bad, and you knew you shouldn't want it? Huh? Okay. But that's not two powerful desires competing. That's a powerful desire competing with a, I know I shouldn't have it. Okay? But that's not what he's describing here. He's saying the spirit has a will, has a longing, has a plan and a purpose. The spirit is yearning for something through you. And the flesh is wanting the exact opposite. The flesh sets its desire against the spirit. So it's like the flesh says, I want to go through that door. And the spirit doesn't just say, that's not allowed. The spirit says, I want to go through that door. The flesh says, I want to climb a mountain. The spirit says, I want to go to the ocean. They're opposite desires. 
It's not that one is passionately desiring and the other is just hindering those passionate desires. It's that the Spirit has a passionate desire. James says the Spirit yearns jealously for us. If you could open your heart and get a glimpse of who God has made you to be, the kind of son he has called you to be, I'm telling you, your new nature would just be eaten up with a desire to know that and to press into that reality. It would feel like food to do the will of him who sent you and to finish his work. But lacking any vitality in the spirit, we have a powerful flesh and an insipid spirit, a feckless, directionless spirit. And so the flesh just runs roughshod over us. That's why he says, walk by the spirit. Get in motion, start moving in the spirit and the flesh will be run over. If you try to control the flesh with the flesh, it's futile. And if you try to control the flesh with an empty, vacuous principle, it's impossible. But if you will build yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit, and keep yourselves in the love of God, if you will seek the Lord and His purpose and His destiny and His will, His heart, His love, the place of sacrifice and service that He has called you to, if you would fill your mind with those things, then we would actually have a fair face-off right here in the meridian place between flesh and spirit. And I believe by the Spirit you could start putting to death the deeds of the body. But you can't tell the difference between your voice and God's voice. You've fallen so much in love with yourself that you think you're God whenever you start rattling off in your brain. This is hideous. We need to repent of this. This is absurd. We know better than that. At least those of us who have truly crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. You see, we flatter ourselves that we're trying. And we flatter ourselves that we're trying because life is hard. But the Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. It's not just the way of the Christian that's hard. It's the way of the transgressor. We live in this place where we won't let the flesh fully be God and we won't let the spirit fully be God. We live in this no man's land where we don't fully partake of either the world or the kingdom. Double-minded. Unsure what is our mind and what is God's mind. Receiving nothing from the Lord and not even fully possessing the life of the world. 
At least the world offers a hedonism in this life, even if it's followed by hell in the life to come. But if we persist in a kingdom context without expelling the flesh from the throne, without truly crucifying our will, our perspective, our worldview, then we are miserable people. If the world is a hard place for the flesh, how hard is it from the, in the kingdom? <laughs> it's like, come into the kingdom. You're not going to have any of the food that the world gives the flesh. You're not going to have any of the flattery that the world gives the flesh. You're not going to have any of the support of flesh to flesh, hopefully. Come on in and be happy. So, the fruit of the Spirit is bitterness, hatred, misery. No, that sounds like the goat dying. Amen. That sounds like somebody who's trying to be taken to the cross. Thank you, Jesus, God. Thank you, Jesus. The kingdom ought to be the most miserable place imaginable for the flesh. That world was designed to flatter and appease and seduce and embellish and strengthen and nourish your flesh so that you would ignore God. But the kingdom is designed to crucify the flesh and feed the spirit, strengthen the spirit, encourage the spirit, acknowledge the spirit, follow the spirit. So you come in here, it's like, there's nothing for me. You're right. But if you want a new you, there's something for that one. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And whenever we feel that proving spirit come inside of us, we need to stop and say, wait a minute, God. What is happening to me? I'm trying to prove something to Brother Dan about myself. I don't know my own heart. Who can know it besides God? I'm trying to show something to those people. I don't need to show anything to them. I know the least of all about who this is. But God, all I want to do is crucify this, dethrone this, get myself out of the way. Amen. Would you fill me again with your spirit? Would you make me to know gladness? Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Would you take me back to the place where I could take pleasure in the things of God as if they were my food to do his will? Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. The more clever you are, the more dangerous it is. Because the more likely you'll be, it'll be that you can hide that flesh. <laughs> but in hiding it, you're preserving it. In preserving it, you're perpetuating your misery. <laughs> That's death. And with Paul, you say, who can deliver me of this body of death? Jesus can. God can. Not in your strength 
but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Your new, your new man knows the difference between the voice of God and the voice of the flesh. You know it, but you won't stay in that new frame of mind. Amen. You are not transformed by the renewing. Thank you, Jesus. You are formed. You stay formed in the likeness of that old self that is being corrupted through its desires. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. This is not an intellectual exercise, brothers and sisters. Amen. God is speaking to you and showing you that the stalemate is a lie. He is more powerful, but you are allowing that flesh to be too resilient. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Who is going to crucify that flesh? You are. By the grace and spirit of God, but you're going to do it. People pray and say, oh God, take my pride away. No. 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 Oh God, give me an opportunity to humble myself. Oh, God, help me not to be so full of vanity. Oh, no, no, no. God, help me to consciously shatter my image every time I see its reflection. Oh, God, you know, please help me to serve better. No, I'm going to offer myself as a living sacrifice. I'm not going to hold anything back. Lord, I know you'll honor that sacrifice if it's complete. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Oh, God, please help submission to not be so hard on me. No. No. Help submission to feel like a cross and help me to pick up my cross and follow you. Amen. Praise you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise you, Lord God. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. 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 Amen. As God is speaking to us tonight, His Word is, a, is an arrow. And I can feel it finding its target. I can feel it discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's got, it's got a heat-seeking missile. And it's seeking out that resilient flesh. Will you hide it? Will you guard it? Will you explain it? Will you defend it? Will you ignore it? Will you suppress it? Or will you stand up and let that arrow pierce you right through? Will you fall on the rock and be broken? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And some are asking themselves right now, what am I feeling? I'll tell you what you're feeling. You're feeling the love of God. Amen. Consider what kind of love the Father is extending to you tonight so that you would become 
a son of God. Amen. Hallelujah. There's an Ishmael inside of every one of us. There's a conniving Jacob inside of every one of us. And there's an Israel waiting to be born. One who perseveres with God. There's a whiner who thinks he can't get anything unless he connives and manipulates for it. Amen. And there's one who says, God, I want to be born of your nature. I want your spirit to come inside of me. I want to belong to God because I have the spirit of Christ. I want to belong to God because I've crucified the old competitor. Amen. Hallelujah. The flesh wars against the spirit. Who's going to win that war? Who's going to win that war? Hallelujah. As we're speaking tonight, people are picking winners and losers. People are saying the spirit's going to win tonight. I'm going to ride this conviction all the way to victory. And others are shaking their heads saying, I don't think I better. Amen. The flesh wars against the spirit. Can we all choose the spirit? Amen. Have your way, holy God. Take control, holy God. I surrender, holy God. Everything, withholding nothing.